an encouraging hymn, and I'm particularly thankful for it. Have you ever felt uncomfortable being the center of attention? Every eye looking upon you, looking to see what your next move will be. What will he do? What will she say? It could be unnerving to say the least when when everyone's looking at you. I remember years ago, I, you'll be surprised, (laughs) was not very gifted at publicly speaking. I was often frightened uh, to be the center of attention for everyone's little beady eyes to be looking at me. I often, in retrospect, often fall into old habits because of that, where I find it difficult to look at people when I'm speaking in public, because I feel like, wow, this is a real moment, so I often look over people, and so, you know, having been trained well, and uh, even there's frightening to see and look at people as I speak. Being the center of attention is never fun, although we find sometimes we like to be the center of attention. You know, perhaps this morning you are one who enjoys to kind of be the the center of attention, whether it be at your home or in your workplace. Uh, You find it strange when you're not the subject of the conversation. Uh, You enjoy the attention. It's always uh, one of the things in our home that that, that kind of reflects that is uh, in our home, when you have a birthday, uh, we don't have, you know, birthdays. Um, for some reason, I'm not quite sure why, but we have birth months uh, where we sort of emphasize, you know, and I've heard some of the saints here, you know, it's my birth month, and I'm always like, what does that mean? Um, what it means is you want to be the center of attention, not just for one day, but for an entire month, just like when you were an infant, right? Uh, right? Infants often are the center of attention. They, they take up a lot of time. They take up a lot of attention. You can't just leave the infant alone. You can't just, you know, I'll just leave it here while I go attend to other matters, right? An infant goes with you. You carry it with you. I have that sort of in my mind right now at home. You know, we have a little one. She goes everywhere. Either my wife is there. She's carrying her around or I'm taking her where I go. I'm washing the dishes. There's the infant sitting there. My wife's doing the laundry. There's the infant there. Right? The center of attention. And friends, as we think about how Uh, naturally we often have an aversion perhaps to the center of attention or a desire to to sort of be at the attention of others. I think that's natural, to want others' attention. I think it's something about being created in the image of God that that we want others' attention, Uh, that we often find it frustrating when we're talking to someone else. Maybe it's our spouse or a friend or, or a neighbor, and they're not paying attention to us. We are laboring to maybe get our point across or just to share about our day. And, and there are spouses looking at us in the eye, glazed over, and we can tell they're not paying attention to us. And it frustrates us because we want attention. We are like that little screaming infant who's crying for attention. We, we long for attention. We desire for attention. And I think particularly when we are in pain and in suffering we desire attention when we are frustrated and and all by just discouraged we want attention we want someone just to listen to us and and hear our concerns and the weight of 
life that has been placed upon us. Friends, Peter uses that reality of attention and our longing for attention in our passage this morning. He doesn't use it in an arbitrary way, but does it in a way that is faithful to God and His Word to encourage saints that in the midst of suffering, you are the point of God's redemptive history. That Christians are the point. As you consider that title, you might, I wonder, maybe question that. What the heck does that mean? Christians are the point. I thought Jesus was the point. And I thought Jesus was the point of everything. And, and yes, Jesus is the point. Let me be clear about that. But I'm going to show you something in God's Word. I have to argue from God's Word here today that Christians are the center. They are the point of God's redemptive history. Well, if you doubt that, let's look at it in God's Word. I invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 10 through 12. Peter's writing to persecuted Christians. We've considered that over the last couple of weeks. That he is writing to Christians who are suffering. Suffering under various trials. Uh, uh, some are suffering because of their faith, because of their, their trust in Christ. Because they're trying to faithfully follow Christ, they're suffering for their faith. Others are suffering maybe physical difficulty or trial. You can't say specifics, but, but he says various trials. They've been grieved by various trials. So he is writing to encourage them in their suffering. And I want you to see how Peter encourages these saints. What he says to them. What word he gives to them. He doesn't pat them on the back and say everything's going to be fine. It's going to be okay. Jesus loves you. Which is true. But he says, brother, sister, you are the point. You are the point. Let's look here in verse 10. God's word says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels longed to look. So this morning, I, I've summarized this passage in, in that title Christians are the point. Christians are the point of God's revelation through the Old Testament prophets. It's encapsulated there in verse 12. They searched and inquired diligently and carefully. Verse 12, it was revealed to them, what? That they were serving not themselves. It wasn't about them. They weren't, they weren't prophesying about them, but about you. That is to the audience in which Peter is writing. He says, hey, look, the Old Testament, yes, is about Jesus, but it is also about you. And that's the encouragement you want to hear this morning. The purpose of this sermon is to encourage 
suffering Christians by reminding them of their privileged position in redemptive history. The point of this passage, and I hope the point that you see and apply to your life, is that you would see your privileged position in Christ. Is if you are a new creation in Christ, if you are a Christian this morning, you have a privileged position in redemptive history. You have a special place that is unique and different than anyone else. That you stand in a place that the prophets longed to see. You have received something that they only saw from afar. So I want to encourage you this morning in three ways. I think this passage outlines three encouragements. There's three things Peter encourages here. Considering this this privilege that we have in our salvation. Number one... God has given prophets to serve you. God has given the prophets to serve you. That's going to be earth shattering, I hope for you. I hope this kind of sets some light bulbs off about the way you see the Old Testament. I hope you see the Old Testament a whole different way this morning. You don't see it about some old dusty people that lived a long time ago, but you see it about people who are writing down words for you. For you, living four to 5,000 years after they wrote those words. They were for you, living in 2017. Secondly, God has given preachers to announce... God has given preachers to announce good news to you. And apparently they can't announce it very clearly. Uh, or... or Or eloquently, praise be to God, we don't have to. We can be like stammering Moses. It's the message we deliver, not just how we deliver it. And thirdly, angels long to see God's work in you. Angels long to see God's work in you. They're up in heaven looking in on your life. They ain't guardian angels. They're looking to see how God's Word is transforming your life and they just wish they could get in on it. So those three things we want to consider briefly this morning. Number one, God has given prophets to serve you. God has given you prophets. Look with me here in verse 10. Paul, uh, Peter writes, sorry, Peter writes, Concerning this salvation. Uh, concerning what salvation? Well, this is a reference back up to verse 9. Verse 9, we see there that through the testing of our faith, through our obedience to Christ, through the work of the Spirit in our lives, we obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. So Peter here is developing and building on what we considered last week, that we have been invited in by God. God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That we have been born again. We have been saved. And and through salvation, the salvation that we have received, 
He's going to now develop a little bit more. He's going to encourage us a little bit more. And he says, now concerning this salvation, I want you to know something. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. Now I want you to pause there and I want you to look at your Bibles and I want you to look at what it says. The prophets who prophesied, right? The prophesying prophets, right? What else do prophets do but prophesy, right? Uh, that's what he's saying. He's kind of a little redundant here, but, he, but he's pressing the point. What came out of the prophets' mouths was what? They prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. The Christian Standard Bible really emphasizes here a little bit more of the weight for you. What was prophesied, what, the grace that was for you. That is what you were destined to receive. And that fits the context, does it not? If we understand that the grace that was to be yours, that is, that was destined for you to receive, well, friends, that, that fits the context of election. That fits the context of the overarching theme of this letter that we, according to the foreknowledge of God, have been chosen in Christ. That we have been called out of humanity, out of all the nations, to receive God's grace. That is, we were destined to receive it. It was ours. And so they talked about us. And Peter uses this word grace in his letter kind of as an umbrella word to really talk about salvation. Uh, in other places, he uses the word inheritance or living hope or salvation. Uh, Peter is referring here, saying the grace that was to be yours is the salvation that is to be yours. And I just want to make clear here about the word grace, because we get really goofy about grace here. Um, sometimes we're confused about it. We think it's something we say at dinner time, you know, to say grace. Um, no, um, grace in the Bible is the unmerited favor of God unmerited favor of God. We considered that briefly last week. Um, we talk about salvation being a gift from God. That's what we mean by grace, right? If salvation is something you've earned, we call that a wage, right? When you work, you earn a wage. When you are saved, you are saved by grace. It is a Gift. It's not something you earned, something you deserve because you're a good boy and good girl. Not because of something about who you are or what you will be, but solely according, as we've seen, to God's character. So grace is receiving something we do not deserve nor earn, and we receive it through faith. We receive this gift. We, we, God says, here is a gift. And, and we're like little dummies. We're just like, thank you. We're like, yes. Oh, yes, I do not deserve this gift. But I will take it. Thank you. No, we are not foolish to reject this gift. But we embrace this gift by faith through Christ alone to God's glory alone. And so salvation is not something that we earn, but it is about grace. Grace. Marvelous grace. So Peter here is writing about grace and how the prophets were talking about grace. 
that was to be yours. So what does he mean here? Well, I think what Peter is getting out here is that they were writing about you. They were writing, they were prophesying words that would only be fulfilled in your repentance and faith, that would come to reality through Christ and through your faith. As Jesus says in Matthew 13, 17, For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. What he is saying is that, listen, you have a privileged place in redemptive history. These prophets didn't get in on it. You got in on it. Now that is not to say that Old Testament prophets were not saved or not in glory. All right? They were saved. And, and I, just want, I think the Lord, I just want to clarify something because we get a little goofy here too. Uh, we somehow think that Old Testament saints were saved in some other different way than we are saved. Friends, it has always been by grace alone, through faith alone. Salvation has never been by any other means. It's never been by obedience to the Ten Commandments. So stop doing that if you think that that's going to somehow impress God. Stop posting the Ten Commandments all over the place and, and start trusting the finished work of Christ. All you're doing is condemning people, by the way, when you post those things. But understand that Old Testament saints, when did they receive the Ten Commandments? Was it before they were delivered from slavery or after they were delivered from slavery? Well, it was after they were delivered from slavery, wasn't it? That wasn't the means by which... God didn't say, hey, obey these ten rules and then, you know, I'll save you. No, God saved them and said, this is how I want you to live. Just as He saves us, He says, I save you by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and now live in the law of Christ. And so to be clear, these Old Testament prophets were saved just as we were in faith alone. And friends, I just want you to rest on that and revel in the glory of this, that prophets in the Old Testament were writing for your benefit. They were writing so that you would receive the grace of God. And as you consider that, I wonder, does that change the way we read the Old Testament? You know, I know how Christians are, and I've seen this illustration before, and this is really helpful. And even my own Bible testifies to this reality. You know, if you look at your Bible that you have before you right now, if it's your own Bible, I bet you as you look at that Bible, and as you look at the, the, the right side of the Bible, I bet you the pages are more worn on the right side than the left side. I guarantee you that. I bet you some of the ones on the left side and the Old Testament side are stuck together. I bet you those things, haven't even, you haven't even broken them apart yet. Right? And I guarantee you, if you look at your Bible, it looks like that. Because we don't read the Old Testament. We're scared of it. We're afraid of it. But friends, what the, what the heck do you think the prophets were talking about? What do you think the, the apostles were preaching about? Well, what do you think their sermon text was coming from but the Old Testament? When Peter stood up there on the day of Pentecost, he didn't open the New Testament. There was no New Testament. They opened the Old Testament up and he began to preach his word. Or as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, now these things happened to them as example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of ages has come. For the Bible, and particularly the Old Testament, was written for you. So that you could see that God would use wicked people to bring about his glorious end. Yesterday, uh, my brother Vince, he was like pointing out, he, he told me, he says, man, you ever look at the Old Testament? 
I almost started talking like Vince, sorry. Um, and, and you ever look at that and you see those people? Man, it's so encouraging to see that God would use a murderer like Moses. He would use a murderer and adulterer in King David. God doesn't use right people. He uses messed up people. He transforms them and changes them for his glory. Oh, friends, we neglect such a wealth when we do not consider that the prophets are writing for you. Moving on, we see also here that the prophets were writing what the Spirit said. The prophets were writing what the Spirit said. Look with me at verse 10 again. They searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them. Friends, we don't have a lot of time, but boy, we could sit and think about, whoa, 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 whoa. He says something about Christ Jesus here doing some stuff in the Old Testament. You mean Jesus didn't, wasn't born in Bethlehem? No. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He has eternally existed. Uh, he was not created nor did he have a beginning, nor does he have an end. And we see here something of a lingering of the preexistence of Christ, that Christ Jesus here, and more literally here, that is the Spirit that comes from Christ, that is, I think he's referring in verse 11, to the Holy Spirit, as verse 12 in the context indicates that it was the Holy Spirit. So just as the Holy Spirit now uh, speaks through the, to, through the apostles, so the Holy Spirit spoke through prophets, what did he speak but the word of Christ? The word that became flesh and dwelt among us. And so I want you to see and understand that the prophets in the Old Testament didn't fully understand everything that they were writing about. They are, were like us. They looked through a glass dimly lit. They didn't fully understand. They kind of looked and they could see kind of a silhouette of a suffering servant. But, but no one in the Old Testament, if you would ask them, the suffering servant and the Son of Man being united together, they would have been like, what? I don't know. I don't see that connection. It wasn't until Jesus comes and begins to interpret the Old Testament. And so we interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. Uh, we're not like the false teachers uh, on the TV who take the Old Testament out of context and don't take it through the New Testament. They just kind of take it and say, oh, that just applies. No, no, friends, I want you to understand every promise in the Old Testament. Don't you hear me? Every promise in the Old Testament has its fulfillment in Jesus of Nazareth. If you doubt that, read the Sermon on the Mount. There, Jesus systematically unfolds the Old Testament and every one of those passages, he is saying, I fulfill, I fulfill. Every one of those laws and commandments he moves through, I fulfill, I fulfill. And so we want to understand then that it is an immense privilege of us that what the prophets are speaking is the words of Christ to us and for our benefit. Now, what did they talk about? We are told that they talked about the glories of Christ, the sufferings of Christ, and and for that's what we read about. I used Isaiah 52 and 53 just as a way to put in your mind that, wow. And so this afternoon, if you just like have nothing to do, which I hope you don't, you will go to Isaiah 52 and 53. It's in your bulletin. Go there and I want, go line by line. 
And see how every one of those was fulfilled in Jesus. He was stricken and smitten. He was mangled beyond semblance. He hung upon the cross of Christ. He didn't even look like a man anymore. He was so marred and beaten. Consider how those words were fulfilled. And so that's what they spoke. The prophets were talking about Christ. They were talking about this. And the language here, I want you to see it in verse 11. He says that they inquired what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He, that is the Holy Spirit, predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And I love the way that other translations put this and they emphasize that that is the sufferings that were destined for Christ. I want you to hear the parallelism between verse 10 and verse 11. Grace destined for you, suffering destined for Christ. What we see here is the gospel in sort of formation that you were destined to receive something you did not deserve. Christ Jesus was destined to receive something he did not deserve. And so that through what he did not deserve, you receive what you do not deserve. That's the great exchange of the gospel. That Christ Jesus dies in your place, the the place your sin deserves, the wrath of God that your sin rightly deserves, Christ Jesus bears in his own body. Brothers and sisters, I pray that you would find that encouraging this morning. There's much more we could say about this passage, much more we could really mine out, and I have much I have written down here in very little time. But I want you to see clearly that the prophets were writing to encourage you. And so I wonder, will that transform the way you read your Bible? Will that transform the the amount of time you give to your Bible, particularly the Old Testament? Look, I know it can be difficult to get through the weeds of Leviticus. I know that's some tough stuff. I know that those chronologies, you know, it's a little rough. I know. And I'm a pastor and it's rough. Like, it's hard. But friends, in our day and age, there are so many good resources out there to help you read through the Bible. Friend, do not neglect this great privilege that you have. Go there and see those stories. Consider how those who have gone before us have suffered. Go and consider, as Paul writes, that they were written down for our instruction. That the the temptations that David endured were an example to you and to me. Church history reminds us that that Christians generally suffer for their faith. That they suffer in a fallen world. And, and friends, as we look back over the corridors of time, that should encourage us. That should be like, I'm not alone in this. I'm not the only one who has suffered reproach for the name of Jesus. I'm not the only one that's been ridiculed and made fun of because I care more about following God than following this world. Friends, that's what those Old Testament saints will encourage you in. That's what the prophets will do. And so it is immense privilege to consider that God has given us the prophets to serve us. Secondly, God has given preachers to announce good news to you. This is a small little point, and I want you to just see it. He continues to write in verse 12, It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you. 
Right? So when did these things come to reality? When did what was hidden become real? When did it become visible? Well, it was through the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of the gospel. They have preached to you good news by the Holy Spirit. I think what Peter is referring to here is the apostolic witness. I think what Peter is referring to here is the apostles preaching the authoritative word of God to us. What we have written down, what we call our New Testament, is the apostles' teaching. So when you read in your Bible, in the book of Acts, how the first Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that is encapsulated for us in the canonical scripture in the New Testament. That is the apostles' teaching. That is, we follow what the apostles taught. So those who authored the New Testament were apostles or their companions. It wasn't just some dude out there in the desert writing down some stuff to us. These were messengers sent by God under the authority of the Scripture, under the authority, excuse me, of the Holy Spirit to proclaim to us good news. Now, we've kind of got out of habit calling it good news. And I know some of you senior adults, your older saints, you remember the time when we used to talk about the good news, right? We've exchanged it with the word gospel, and it's the same word, means the same thing, it's synonymous. But I think good news is a good word, isn't it? Because right there, it causes us to ask a question. What the heck's so good about this news? Why is it so good? Why isn't it bad news? Well, friends, because I have some bad news to tell you. The reason why the gospel is good news is because there's some really bad news in the Bible. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, there we receive the bad news. The bad news is that every single human being, yes, created in the image of God, Yes, created to live in accountability to God, but because of our sin nature, because we are depraved, because we love the darkness more than we love the light, we live life our way rather than God's way. Rather than doing what God wants, we do what we want. We live our self-centered, selfless lives, selfish lives for our own end. And the bad news is that what we deserve is death. When we, earlier we talked about wages, right? Well, the Bible tells us that the wages of our rebellion, the wages of what the Bible calls sin, living life our own way, well, friends, the wages of that is death. And I don't mean just dying in a grave, being stuck in underground. I mean dying eternally, separated from God. That's bad news. And even worse news, you can't do nothing about it. Last time I went to a cemetery, it doesn't matter how much you scream at the ground. It doesn't matter how much you do, how much shouting and jumping you do. Nobody's coming up out of the ground. No zombies walking around. But thanks be to God, he did something. We've been born again through the living, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Peter says. 
God in immense love for us did not leave us in our sin, in our deadness, but sent his son to die in our place. As we just considered, he died the death we deserved. He lived the life we should have. And he died on the cross for our sin so that all those who would repent of their sins and trust in him would be saved. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. We do not despair this morning because Jesus isn't dead. Jesus is alive. And the hope that one day we will, those graves will be burst open is because of the resurrection of Christ. And so these preachers announce good news to us. They announce this good news, or what we call the gospel. And friends, I want you to see they do it by the Holy Spirit. That is, they do it from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, what preachers deliver to you is not their word, but God's word. That is inspired by God, is authoritative. We live in a world that rejects authority. We live in a world that says, I will do things my way. I don't care what you say. You can't speak into my life. You can't tell me how to live my life. You can't judge me. Then comes the authoritative word of God. And we believe as God's people that God's word is authoritative. That God does have a way he desires for us to live for his glory. And so we see in this passage that what the apostles preached and then subsequently what I'm preaching to you isn't my word but the spirit of God's word. Just as the Old Testament scriptures are inspired, so the New Testament scriptures are inspired by the Holy Spirit. As Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture, all of it, despite what Jefferson thought, believed, or maybe what you believe, all means all. I know it's it's hard. I know it's confused. I know that word all is confusing. All Scripture. Jesus says every dot and iota, every little speck in the manuscripts, every little... Little, little period and every little thing is inspired by God. All scripture is breathed out by God, that is spoken by God, and is profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the person of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Friends, even the genealogies are inspired. Even the genealogies, according to 2 Timothy 3.16, are profitable. Maybe consider that the next time you skip over them. And so preachers don't come and announce to you their own words, but God's word. And my question for you is, how do you know? How do you know that what I say regularly from this desk is God's word if you don't have the Bible open? If you don't like the Bereans, like go home and like, I'm going to check that dude out. I don't know about that guy. I don't know. I need to check it out. I need to check for myself. But see, friends, what we do is we listen to sermons just like we watch TV. Minds off, hearts open, and we, and we wonder why we're not transformed. Minds off, hearts open. 
Rather than opening the Bible, looking like, is what I'm saying like actually coming from this thing? Or is he just, you know, kind of sitting in his office like putting things together? Friends, this is why I preach verse by verse, precept upon precept. Why I'm not like coming up with really cool, you know, themes and like, you know, series, you know, five ways to a better you. Because friends, that will not transform you. This alone will transform you. If you give yourself to God's word, it will expose the light of the gospel upon you. Because here's my thing. I, don't, I can come up here and scream and shout just like I could go down to the cemetery and jump and hoop and holler and do all kinds of crazy things. But at the end of the day, my words will not impart life. It is only the words of Jesus as he calls old Lazarus from the grave. That he calls your dead soul to life through the word of God proclaimed. If you want to read more about that, go to Romans 10. You'll see that clearly there. So friends, I wonder, do you check their work? Do you check my work? Do you give yourself? One thing you could do to better prepare and cultivate your heart to hear God's word regularly is to read it beforehand. Every week in our bulletin, on the last page, on the very end, it is right there in the back. First Peter, next week. First Peter, chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. Friend, if you can got nothing to do this week, there you go. You can read that every day and think about that. Of course, read more than that, but, but, but you know, read that. Be prepared. Ask God to speak to you through his word. Friends, you'll know where I'm going to be. Not a surprise. I'll tell you. Not a shock. So give yourself. Prepare your heart. Uh, pastor, a pastor must prepare you to that. Brothers, you must prepare your family's heart. Cultivate that in your life. Husbands, cultivate your wives' hearts. Sisters, cultivate your ears to hear God's word. Don't just come in here and just be like, oh, I'm just here. No. Pray, God, speak to me today. Let me hear from you today. I want to conclude with this final word. We count it a privilege that God has given us prophets to serve us, preachers to announce the gospel to us, and thirdly, angels long to see God's work in us. This is a short thing that he says here at the end, but, but, but if you're like me, we can just read it and forget, forget it, not, not see it. Look what he says here. In these things that have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, Things into which angels long to look. Oh. Friends, angels cannot get enough of seeing your transformation in the gospel. They want to get in on it, but they can't. There's no, there's no gospel redemption for angels. Satan fell. There was no sacrifice to satisfy God's wrath. God punished them and angels in heaven we don't become angels you know despite what hollywood might taught you about what you learned on the on the movies bible never says that and here's why because we are in a privileged position above angels to become an angel is to like step down from your privileged position 
angels aren't more powerful than us, aren't better than us, aren't in a... No, what Peter is saying here is that angels are in a privileged position, yes, but we are in a more privileged position. That angels... Literally, like the language here is they're like stooping down, like looking through the portals of of the windows in heaven, looking down on you and how you are pursuing Christ and how you are loving your wife and how you are loving your neighbor. They are longing to see your transformation and they are in awe of what God. Does this give you confidence? Does this encourage you? That people are watching you? That angels are watching your life and seeing God's work in you? So that they, as Paul says in Ephesians 3, may go run around the universe telling the principalities and authorities all over the cosmos about what God is doing in your life? And how he has taken you and transformed you from one degree of glory. And how at the end you will look like Jesus. That's what Paul says. So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be known among the world and the cosmos. Friends, this is a great encouragement to us. I hope that this text has sufficiently convinced you that Christians are the point of God's revelation through the Old Testament prophets. I hope that you've been encouraged as you've been reminded of your privileged position in redemptive history. That God has given you prophets to serve you. That you would go to them and be served by them. That you would go and and, and give yourself to the regular preaching of God's word. It is God's gift to you that he has told you the mysteries of Christ and has not left it hidden from you. And that you would see... That angels long to see the work of God in you. Brother, sister, there is nothing sweeter than to spend this Lord's Day thinking about these things. About this salvation that you have received through faith alone in Christ alone. I finish with these words from Hebrews 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith Moses when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of heaven, or treasures of Egypt, excuse me, for he was looking to the reward. Friend, that which Moses longed for has come to you. It is a great privilege that Christ has been revealed to you. And let that be an ever encouragement to you for his glory and our good. Let's pray. Father, our prayer is that you would, by your spirit, not allow us to remain in our trespasses and sin. Our prayer is that those who are blinded in sin, that the spotlight of your grace would be shown upon their hearts. Our prayer is that you would not leave us in our sins, but transform us by your Spirit. 
we pray that we would count it an immense privilege to having received Christ. That though we suffer, we suffer for the glory of Christ. That we would give ourselves to that end. That we would see this great privileged position we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we get to enjoy something that thousands longed to enjoy. That we have the privilege of the Spirit of God living in us, keeping us from sin, and driving us to our eternal home. What an immense privilege it is. What a privilege it is that you have not hidden these things, but have clearly made them known through the apostles and prophets. That we might repent of our sins and trust in them. What an immense privilege it is to know that right now in heaven around your throne are angels looking in on this little body gathered in an obscure city and they are in awe of the work of the gospel calling wicked men and women and inviting them into your glorious kingdom. May we forever sing of this glorious kingdom. We pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. As we conclude our time this morning, uh, we want to finish by reflecting in a hymn entitled, See the Destined Day Arise. We've learned it over the months previous.